Immigration is not a solution to world poverty. Immigration should be a tool that's used to improve our country, not something that we should be exploiting to give ourselves a false sense of moral superiority. Welcome to the Mr. Reagan 2020 Presidential Candidate Special, Part 4. Mr. Reagan. All right, I'm going to interrupt this video for one second to save your life. Are you a prepper? Are you a survivalist? You should be, because preppers are prepared. Now, we've seen some devastating weather events recently. When emergencies strike and the power goes out closing stores, you should have a backup food supply standing by in your home ready for use. There is a two-week food supply in a locking tote from My Patriot Supply, and it's the coolest thing ever. Breakfast, lunches, and dinners that last up to 25 years. Right now, this two-week emergency food kit is being sold at 45% off when you go to a special website that was set up specifically for Mr. Reagan viewers. It's preparewithmrreagan.com. My Patriot Supply ships fast in one business day, right to your door. When it's breaking news, it's too late to prepare. Do this now so that there are no surprises and save 45% at preparewithmrreagan.com. That's preparewithmrreagan.com. The link is in the description. All right, now let's get back to the presidential candidates. Tulsi Gabbard. So apparently Rogue from X-Men is running for president. <laughs> I say that, of course, because of the striking white streak in her hair. Tulsi Gabbard is everything the left loves. She's a woman. She's Hindu, not Christian. And most importantly, she's not white. She's an intersectional jackpot. And she's from Hawaii, so, you know, she surfs. She's everything Beto O'Rourke wishes he could be, but isn't. Tulsi Gabbard is by far the best 2020 candidate on the left. Actually, she kind of scares me. If the Democratic voters had any sense at all, they would nominate Tulsi Gabbard. Of all the leftists I don't want to see in the Oval Office, Tulsi Gabbard is actually the leftist I least don't want to see there. That is, she seems like she would do the least amount of harm, and maybe even a little good. I watched a lot of Tulsi Gabbard's stuff for this video, more than any other candidate. This is mainly because I couldn't find much I disagreed with her on. I mean... That's crazy. Eventually, I did find some basic stuff, and I'll go over some of that. But Tulsi Gabbard is in no way a leftist. She seems really smart, genuine, passionate. And she—and you might want to sit down for this. She thinks for herself. What kind of leftist thinks for themselves? It's like finding a unicorn guarding the Holy Grail. If I didn't know her party designation, I'd honestly find it difficult to say watching her interviews. She addresses real problems with the world and seeks out practical solutions. I mean, I really like her. If it weren't for a few of her boilerplate Democratic policy positions, I'd probably even recommend her over some Republicans. So yeah, I don't really consider Tulsi Gabbard to be a quote-unquote Democrat. She's She's pretty clearly a libertarian. I think that if Hawaii were a conservative state, Tulsi Gabbard would have ended up being a Republican. But as it's a Democratic stronghold, she needed to be a Democrat if she wanted to hold any political office there. And the thing that astonished me the most when looking through all the Tulsi Gabbard footage was this. We all need to put aside our partisan interests and recognize that finding that the President of the United States did not conspire with Russia to interfere with our elections is a good thing for our country. It is essential that we put aside partisan interests and work together to unite our country. What? 
What was that? Tulsi, you're a Democrat. A Democrat. Okay, you're supposed to be obsessing over this relentlessly until Trump is out of office. What are you doing? You are a Democrat, Tulsi. And yet, it's like, it's like, it's like you're a sensible person or something. Wait a minute. Where am I? But, all that said... After having jumped into the 2020 race, Tulsi Gabbard has shifted left quite a bit. For instance, I've actually heard her say both that she's for free college tuition. That was when she was on The View after announcing her candidacy. But also, before that, she said that she was against free college tuition. That was when she was on Joe Rogan before she announced her candidacy. But she's clearly against a lot of standard Democrat positions. She's against the Green New Deal, although she speaks about it delicately. I have some concerns with the Green New Deal and about some of the vagueness of the language in there, so have not uh, co-sponsored that resolution. She's for criminal justice reform, but she doesn't tend to bring race into it, which is crazy. Again, you are a Democrat, Tulsi. In fact, I couldn't find one moment when Tulsi invoked race at all in any interview or speech. I have a theory about this. Tulsi Gabbard is from Hawaii. My best friend Kurt lives in Hawaii, and I know a little bit about the culture there. People in Hawaii are seriously racist. But it's not the white people. It's the Asians and the local Hawaiians. White people are a minority in Hawaii and are very clearly the victims of racism there. Tulsi would have seen this firsthand as her mother is white. I often say on my show that white people are the least racist people on the planet, and I think Tulsi Gabbard would have grown up with that experience. So Tulsi Gabbard, she just doesn't talk about race, at least as far as I could see. She doesn't seem to play into identity politics, and I love that. Now, there are some things that I strongly disagree with Tulsi Gabbard on. She's advocated Medicare for All, she's pro-choice, she's voted for some gun restriction stuff, and she's advocated for the labeling of GMOs. I don't know why people think GMOs are bad. And I know some of you hate GMOs, but I always say the same thing, name a GMO that's ever killed anyone. It never has, because GMOs are not bad. Tulsi Gabbard's big policy thing, however, is that she's anti-interventionalist. Okay, anti-interventionist. Tulsi Gabbard's big policy thing, however, is that she's anti-interventionist. And by anti-interventionist, what I mean is she's anti-war, big time. Uh, but she's not crazy. She's not like Mike Gravel. She's not trying to give reparations to Guantanamo detainees or some crazy thing like that. She's just like, we don't need to be sending troops around the world and imposing our will around the world all the time. And I think that's a totally legitimate position. This is basically her platform. She's running on an anti-interventionist platform. Um, I'm not going to say too much on this because it's both very simple and extremely complex. The simple position is just she doesn't think the U.S. should intervene with foreign governments. For the complex description, you'll have to watch some Tulsi Gabbard videos. You're bound to hear her say something about her anti-interventionist views. She talks about them relentlessly in every interview she does. If anything, it, it could be a problem for her because her campaign seems so singularly focused on this issue. Um, if, on the other hand, she branches out a little, she'll be an extremely effective candidate. One thing that's particularly interesting about Tulsi Gabbard is that she takes on issues that nobody else seems to have even noticed but that, that do need attention. For instance, she's introduced legislation called Securing America's Elections Act, um, this act would secure the veracity of our voting system, which I think is great. And I think that the rest of Congress could easily get behind that. Uh, she introduced a bill called the Stop Arming Terrorists Act, uh, <laughs> which would prohibit the United States government from funding rebel groups aligned with ISIS 
uh, or Al-Qaeda, which apparently we do. Now, I'm not an expert on that particular aspect of our foreign policy, but I was convinced by what Tulsi Gabbard had said on this issue. Tulsi's colleagues in Congress tend to ignore her efforts, and I mean, I don't really know how Congress runs day to day. I mean, maybe ignoring proposed legislation is pretty common, but um, she does bring up some great issues, and I think they deserve a lot more attention. There are a few policy positions that I think Tulsi Gabbard has adopted simply because they're standard Democratic positions, um, you know, and every Democrat just has to share those positions. Her father is a Hawaiian politician, and he's a strong Catholic. He is adamantly against gay marriage, and he's campaigned against the legalization of, of gay marriage and some other special rights for homosexuals. Tulsi Gabbard used to be an outspoken defender of her father, and she shared his views. Tulsi's mother, however, uh, though from Indiana and of German descent, is a practicing Hindu, uh, and I'm guessing she's probably a bit of a hippie. Uh, so Tulsi ended up taking her mother's religion and shifting to align herself 100% with the pro-LGBT lobby. In fact, despite her lack of evoking race as a thing, she does appear to toe the party line on, you know, gays face discrimination and that nonsense. And that's super annoying. I don't know if she shifted on this because of a genuine change in perspective or if she just realized that, you know, if she wanted to be accepted as a Democrat, she needed to be pro-LGBT. She was also pro-life when she was younger. And on that issue too, she's shifted to a pro-choice position. Now, I don't know if these shifts are genuine changes of mind or, or what, but she, it seems strange to me that the two issues that she completely flipped on 180 degrees are two of the issues that are pretty much non-negotiable for Democrats. You, you really can't be a pro-life Democrat or against gay marriage and expect a healthy political career. Tulsi Gabbard supported Bernie in 2016, but I don't think that's because she's a socialist. I think it's because she's fiercely anti-establishment. And you know what? I love that. Tulsi Gabbard scares me a little. She's she's so smart and considerate and charming and confident, and she thinks for herself. I mean, that is the really crazy thing. But look, she's, she's not going to beat Trump, but of all the candidates, she's the only one that I see who has any shot of it. And look, she's probably not going to get the nomination just because she has such low name recognition, but I do think that she'll get a boost with every debate, and I think that's where she's going to shine. I predict that she'll have a few killer debate moments and quickly rise to the top of the pack, and I think she's going to surprise a lot of people. I still don't think she's going to get the nomination, but she'll probably be the choice of whoever does get nominated as their vice president. And that'll set her up nicely for 2024 when the Democrats lose in 2020. If you're a Democrat voter and you're not voting for Tulsi Gabbard, you're a moron. If you're the Democratic candidate nominated for the general election run and you do not pick Tulsi Gabbard as your VP, you are a moron. Seriously, though, she's not a Democrat. Tulsi, if you're listening, come to the dark side. Conservatives would love you. You don't engage in identity politics. You think for yourself. You're a rational, smart, charming person. You can even keep the LGBT stuff if you want. We don't care. Honestly, if you just switch over before 2024, you'll probably got a good chance. You probably got a good chance of winning on our side. You just gotta drop the pro-choice thing and and maybe open up to a little bit more free market stuff. No pressure, but on the left, you're ostracized. On our side, you'd be a star. John Delaney. John Delaney is probably the least known candidate within the crowded field, and he's the most conservative by a long shot. If he sneezed too hard, I think he might be in danger of turning into a Republican. He was the first to announce his candidacy way back in 2017, and he is all in. He actually quit his job as a U.S. House representative from Maryland in order to go 
all in in his presidential run. He kind of looks like a young Joe Biden, which is weird because Joe Biden is also running. You know what would be really funny? A Joe Biden Delaney ticket. <laughs> it would be like a father-son ticket. It would be great. I really want to see that, actually. <laughs> John Delaney is running on a platform of bipartisanship. And I don't think John got the memo. Democrats are supposed to hate Republicans, John. You're not supposed to disapprove of us or pity us or, or like think we're wrong. You're supposed to hate us. Hate. You're supposed to call us racist and sexist all the time. You're, you're never supposed to speak to us ever. You don't want all that conservative evil infecting your brain. You know, there's actually an index that was created that attempts to empirically measure the bipartisan nature of every member of the House and Senate. And pretty much the entire top half are Republicans and the entire bottom half, almost all Democrats. It's hilarious. And this holds true for both the House and the Senate. So if you want to be a centrist, if you want to bring the parties together, you've got to be a Republican, John. Dem Democrats do not vote for moderates. Republicans do. Delaney is focused exclusively on Iowa and New Hampshire, which is probably why you've never heard of him. I just opened my sixth office here in Iowa. I'm in, sitting here in Waterloo, Iowa. Mm -hmm. So, Martha, I'm pursuing that kind of old-fashioned early state strategy where you're in coffee shops in people's living rooms and you're telling them what your plans are and I'm introducing myself to them and we're getting a lot of enthusiasm on the ground here in Iowa, New Hampshire. So to some extent, I'm playing a bit of a different game, mm -hmm. right? I'm not necessarily playing the national media game right now. I'm playing the Iowa, New Hampshire early state strategy. I watched a bunch of videos on John Delaney and in none of the videos did I hear an interesting point of difference between Delaney and a standard democratic politician. If there's anything interesting about Delaney, it's how singularly uninteresting he is. It's actually kind of amazing. To watch somebody this dull is fascinating. If you can stay awake long enough to appreciate the peculiarity of such a phenomenon, Delaney's biggest problem is the same as Swalwell and Beto and Inslee and Hickenlooper and Tim Ryan. He's a straight white male. As is the case with these other candidates, I'm just bewildered that Delaney would run for president as a Democrat. But of all these straight white guys running, Delaney has by far got the worst straight white guy problem. Because John Delaney isn't just a straight white guy. He also looks like a banker. This is absurd. What am I standing here wasting time for? Felicia's waiting for me. Man, oh man, what a weekend this is going to be. Look at him. He looks like a younger version of the Monopoly guy. He looks like those, those old white guys from the Muppet show. Personally, I don't care for puppets much. I don't find them believable. I don't believe you. <laughs> he looks like George Costanza if George Costanza worked in a bank. In all seriousness, John Delaney seems like a good guy, but there's, there's nothing about him that is particularly interesting, and his policy prescriptions aren't exciting. I really don't see his campaign going anywhere, but he seems like one of those guys who will stick it out long after it's obvious that his campaign is over. And honestly, from my perspective, that's now. <laughs> John Delaney has a net worth of $180 million. Holy crap, really? <laughs> Andrew Yang. So apparently the character of Data in the Goonies grew up to be this guy, Andrew Yang. Pictures of Pal! You guys, I'd be saved by my pictures of Pal! <laughs> guys, I'm in another room! Snopes is totally gonna pick me up on this. Headline, was Andrew Yang really Data from the Goonies? No guys, Data was a fictional character and my statement was what we refer to in English-speaking countries as a joke. I actually like 
Andrew Yang quite a bit. Like Tulsi Gabbard, uh, he's a candidate who thinks for himself, but like several of the 2020 contenders, he's very much a one-issue candidate. Andrew Yang is running on a platform of universal basic income. His simple plan is to give every adult in America $1,000 per month for life. He calls it capitalism that doesn't start at zero. And he has a lot of compelling arguments in favor of this plan. His basic proposition is that automation will decimate millions of jobs in the next 10 years or so. So we need to find a way to take care of this inevitable tsunami of unemployment. If you go to a factory, you'll see it's just giant robot arms as far as the eye can see. Mm. So it's not just that you have artificial intelligence on the horizon. It's that we've been eating away at the most common jobs in the US economy. Uh, for almost 20 years now. The two examples he likes to give are truck drivers and cashiers. Andrew Yang speculates that these two career fields will no longer exist in 10 years, or at least in the same way that they exist today. He contends that after the technology is perfected, driverless vehicles and automated self-checkout will replace the majority of the jobs in these two fields. And to be honest, I'm convinced. I actually believe him. He's made me a believer, but I'm not convinced that universal basic income is the solution. Now, universal basic income comes with a host of benefits, and I actually like almost everything I hear from Yang. However, there are two major problems with universal basic income. One, most Americans despise the idea of working their butts off to support lazy people. We, we don't mind helping the physically handicapped or the, those born with intellectual disabilities, or even people temporarily down on their luck. We're sympathetic to all these people. But lazy people, users, leeches, Americans just have a real hard time sympathizing with such people. It provokes a sensitivity against injustice and a lack of fair play. And, and this manifests in contempt for these people. Secondly, $1,000 per month, $12,000 per year. It's not an acceptable replacement for a truck driver who was making $50,000, $70,000 per year. And there's a third problem with universal basic income, which is that it'll tempt some people to just give up on life. And most of us really hate that idea, creating a benefit to giving up, to quit, to throw in the towel. It's just a revolting prospect for most Americans. We want to encourage people to try not to give up, uh, not to resign themselves to failure. And finally, universal basic income means everyone. Why are we wasting money on people who are already making $100,000, a $1 million, $100 million a year? Why? That just seems like a huge waste. But Yang makes some brilliant points. For one thing, we already pay an absurd amount of money into welfare. What he doesn't mention, and I wish he would, is that Americans pay about double the amount on welfare that we should. Why? Because about half of all wel welfare distributed in America it's, is fraud. A universal basic income would almost totally eliminate welfare fraud. And I love that. That almost makes me want to sign off. Like, where do I sign? Where's the bill? Give me the bill. I'll, I'll sign the bill. However, I do think that there is a better solution. Simply overhaul the welfare system. The welfare system is absurdly complicated. Instead of the current system, let's say everybody making under $20,000 a year or, you know, whatever, uh, they get $1,000 per month. That's it. No exceptions, no restrictions, no extras, just a flat $1,000. Maybe we do it in tiers or something so that, you know, we don't disincentivize, disincentivize people from getting raises or promotions. But yeah, let's renovate the welfare system. Enough fraud. There is one other issue uh, with the loss of jobs as a result of automation that Andrew Yang doesn't seem to recognize. With advancements in technology comes new jobs. This is almost always true. Several years ago, many grocery stores automated about a quarter or a third of their checkout stands. Now, that's a quarter or a third of cashiers unemployed. And this is awful. I mean, it's great for the grocery store owner, and it's actually good for some customers who want to just get in and out. But for some, some people, I mean, they're losing their jobs. It's not good. 
Okay, but, but, I no longer do my own shopping, okay? I use an app, and, all right, and I get my groceries, and they're delivered to my door. Because I and other customers do this, several people have jobs. So where one technology eliminated jobs, another provided jobs. So I'm not quite sold on universal basic income, and I'm not convinced of Andrew Yang's dire predictions. But despite my reluctance to fully go along with him, I do recognize that many of his concerns are legitimate, and I will make this compromise. Let's renovate the welfare system. Let's renovate the welfare system in such a way that it can grow and expand to take care of these future issues should they be as dire as Andrew Yang predicts. And furthermore, I, I will agree to make it a crazy generous program. I'd be willing to provide universal basic income to like 50% of the country, up to maybe $100,000 or something crazy like that. But we will cut every other domestic social program. We will privatize schools. We will deport all illegal immigrants. And most severe of all, the left has to agree only to offer citizenship to immigrants who are both valuable to the country, well-educated professionals, and and only valuable immigrants who can assimilate, those from culturally similar countries to the U.S. with similar values. That means Christians get preference, Europeans get preference, citizens of you know low-crime nations get preference, etc. This idea of giving preference to the poorest, most destitute people, it's moronic, okay? Help those people where they are. Bring in the valuable people, okay? I know everybody on the left will call this kind of thinking racist and heartless or whatever, but it's really just rational. And listen, I'm not against helping people from dissimilar cultures, you know, the most destitute, the most vulnerable people. Indeed, I think that these are some of the people I most want to help. But it's impossible to bring them all to America. And if we continue to bring people to the United States, we're not solving the problem. The world's got like a severed leg and you've put a children's band-aid on it and, you know, brushed your hand hands off and said, well, done my part. <laughs> Job done. I do think that the band-aids that we put on these massive problems make us a bit complacent. Half the world, over 3 billion people live in poverty. But you know, I posted a Facebook rant about how walls are racist, so I sleep well at night. I voted for a Democrat, and uh, you know, I talked about how evil Trump is with my friends, so ha, problem solved. Immigration is not a solution to world poverty. Immigration should be a tool that's used to improve our country, not something that we should be exploiting to give ourselves a false sense of moral superiority. Rant over. Andrew Yang, despite being hyper-focused on this universal basic income thing, he does have a lot of other interesting ideas. He's actually got a hundred or so policy propositions on his website, more than any other candidate. And his ideas are fascinating and, and often address problems that nobody else is talking about. And I don't actually consider Andrew Yang to be a Democrat. He definitely doesn't toe the party line on every issue. He wears a blue hat that says math across it, for one thing, uh, which is pretty funny. And he claims to develop policies purely on data and statistics. One area he diverges from typical Democrats on is gun control. When asked about it in a town hall in New Hampshire uh, in February, he immediately framed the issue in terms of mental health, which is a standard perspective of conservatives. Furthermore, Andrew Yang is the only leftist I've seen who is primarily concerned with the struggles of poor white Americans. In your book, you do say the group I worry about most is poor whites. Why are you most concerned about that group, poor whites? Well, in the context of my book, I was suggesting, to Constance's point, like, uh, how is this uh, tribalism and violence going to manifest itself? And so the group I was most worried about was poor whites who felt like they had no future, um, and then that violence would emerge in large part because that group would become increasingly um, angry and distressed. And so that's the context of the book. But I am most concerned about that group in terms of the, the nationalism that Constance was describing. 
it's funny because I think Andrew Yang genuinely observes poor whites as simply the most disregarded, vulnerable group in America. Andrew Yang seems to be the only one to correctly observe that they're simply the least served, underprivileged ethnic group in America. But that's an absolutely toxic position on the left. So he characterizes it as if, well, if we ignore these people, then they're all going to join the KKK uh, and they'll all turn into white supremacists. So we have to help them out or else they'll start lynching people, right? <laughs> he is allowing the CNN crowd, the identity politics uh, type leftists, to bully him into refocusing his concern, at least recasting the expression of his concern as a concern about white nationalism or white supremacy groups or whatever. But I don't think that's his real concern. I think it's a minor sub-issue that he's highlighting just to appease these annoying people and avoid alienating many people on the left who accept the white people are bad narrative. Now, Andrew Yang is not a policy maverick on every issue. He definitely adopts the boilerplate Democrat policy on a lot of issues. For instance, he's for a Medicare for all opt-in program. And despite the fact that I disagree with him on the universal basic income thing, he brings up a lot of valid concerns that I do think need to be addressed. And we do need a new way to deal with medical care in the US. Yang has also said that he believes that paying teachers more will fix the education system. If you were to talk to a Democrat about how to fix schools, it would be like, oh, let's like, you know, um, invest in technology for the schools, when really the best thing you could do is pay the teachers more. Wrong. Here's a famous chart tracking the cost of public education and student test scores. Look at this. 500000 in 1970, 150000 in 2009. Same scores. Science went down. Yeah, not a solution. This guy is supposed to be a math and statistics guy. I could show you a gazillion graphs that show increased funding of public schools does nothing and that privatization and voucher programs work. But apparently, Andrew Yang hasn't seen the film Waiting for Superman. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it right now. It's that important. Yang also seems to have bought into the climate change hysteria. I think climate change is an existential threat 1A. So I'm for carbon tax and dividend. I'm for rejoining the Paris Accords. I'm for spending hundreds of billions of dollars on our infrastructure to make it more resilient. He supports a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented immigrants currently in the country. There are three approaches. Number one is you can pretend to deport them um, because it's completely unfeasible to deport 12 million people. I mean, like whole regional economies would collapse. Like you can't do it yeah. practically. Like it doesn't make any sense. Right. Number two, you do nothing, which is our current path. And then you have massive problems too because they're constantly interacting with your schools and your hospitals and they're getting into car accidents. And like, you know, it's like an untenable situation for any advanced society. So number three is you create a pathway to citizenship and then you integrate them into society, but it's like a long-term path. Do that seems to me to be the most feasible. Yeah. And so that's where we should go. Okay. These guys both agree that there's only one real option, amnesty. What? No, you can deport them. It's not infeasible as Yang purports. It wouldn't even be that difficult. One, standardize and make mandatory e-verify for every employer. Enact heavy fines for violating this law. Two, tell every illegal that you must leave the country or else you will be deported. We could even offer, uh, you know, to pay for their plane tickets. Many will leave without incident. Most will not, but many will leave. And how do you deport the rest? Well, there will be some raids and it will be ugly. And after that, after they see what will happen to them, 
most illegals will leave. It's just not going to be in their best interest to stay if no employer is willing to hire them and, and there's this real threat of getting arrested. Mass deportation will work. To dismiss this option is totally disingenuous. If you want to implement something as, as radical as universal basic income, you can't give amnesty to millions of illegals. But there's really just one reason why I find Andrew Yang insufferable. He's ferociously anti-Trump. He attacks Trump all the time, pretty much in every interview, speech, and town hall that I've seen. And I'm not really sure why. Andrew Yang is actually identifying a lot of the problems in America accurately, and he's he's got some interesting solutions for these problems, which is which is great, but then when confronted with Trump, who is identifying the same problems and implementing other effective solutions, Andrew Yang ridicules him as if Trump is some kind of a some kind of an idiot. But Andrew Yang also claims to be some kind of bipartisan guy. But Trump is not an idiot, and treating him as such definitely does not endear you to his voters. I mean, what is the point of attacking Trump? Trump and, and you would probably get along if you weren't such a dick to him all the time. You make yourself unattractive to the right by doing this. It's really stupid. Andrew Yang, I think, has bought into this idea that Trump is some kind of an idiot, racist ape who is beneath contempt for all serious people. I think Yang has has bought into a lot of the leftist brainwashing stuff. But out of all of it, this is the worst. This is the stupidest and the most harmful. Open your mind just a little bit, Yang. That said, I do think Yang is a sincere person and serious about helping people. And I think many of the problems he's identified in America are accurate and underappreciated by most other politicians. If I were president, I'd hire him on as an advisor right now. Actually, Trump should do that. Just, just bring him on. You don't have to follow any of his policy suggestions, but definitely bring him in. He's He's got amazing observations and interesting solutions to real problems. Though I can't get behind the universal basic income just yet, I do see the value in it, and I don't discount it as a possible solution to problems we will face in the future in America. And as I said, I'd be willing to do it, given some concessions from the left. But I think Andrew Yang's greatest value in America today is as a gateway drug to the best of all hard drugs, the red pill. And I was doing, when I was doing the research uh, for the Andrew Yang part of the video, I actually met, totally by chance, an Andrew Yang supporter. He's a friend of a friend. I was giving my buddy uh, my old dresser, and this guy came by to help carry it out. And this guy was a, a straight white male and a Democrat. And there really isn't a place for that demographic in the Democratic Party right now. So uh, what do guys like that do? Well, Andrew Yang gives them an out. They don't have to betray their party, but they don't have to totally buy into the identity politics BS of the typical Democratic candidate. And moving to Yang is a step. It's a first or second or third step even toward transitioning out of the cult of the left, deprogramming oneself from the brainwashing. And I do think that that friend of a friend and a huge percentage of Yang supporters will eventually manage to walk away from the left. They're already primed. They've just got to go watch some of Jordan Peterson's interviews and some Ben Shapiro destroys clips on YouTube. <laughs> I actually think that we should support Andrew Yang as conservatives. We, we need to bolster somebody like him. Sure, Grovel will be fun to see be competitive. Uh, the teenager running his campaign are hilarious trolls. And, and I do think Tulsi Gabbard has some, some great ideas. And she's probably the best person running on the left. But Andrew Yang will help red pill those who have seen the hypocrisy of the left. And we need to encourage that. As a conservative or a libertarian, if you want to nudge your leftist friends to the right a little bit, encourage them to check out Andrew Yang. I look forward to seeing him in the debates. I don't think he'll last long, but I, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm wrong. I hope that he does well. Good luck, short round. Hey, lady, you call him Dr. Jones. My professional name. Marianne Williamson, Oprah's spiritual advisor. We see in the middle of our mind a little ball of golden light. 
And we watch now as this light grows larger and larger. So this lady is Oprah's spiritual advisor, and she's got a significant following of women who believes she's got some kind of profound spiritual wisdom or something. I've listened to a bit of her spiritual psychobabble. It's your standard New Age cult stuff. Uh, you know, I've read up a bit on Scientology and Synanon and some of the other popular cults. And there are some common themes. There's usually a lot of psychology and not all of that is bunk. There, there's often some legitimate psychological theories um, and analyses and, and some standard treatment techniques, but they're almost always treated with, you know, original language. You know, they change the language of this stuff in order to make it sound like they're original ideas that are unique to the cult, right? And there's often a lot of ideas stolen from Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or paganism, and a lot of philosophy is lifted from various philosophies throughout history, um, from around the world. You know, anything from the Greeks to Eastern philosophy to the Enlightenment thinkers. And there's always a lot of religious language used or spiritual language um, in order to make the more BS ideas sound very profound. So if you steal a bunch of really good ideas from other people and other religions and mix in a little standard science stuff, you can develop really convincing philosophies or maybe even uh, a convincing religion. And if you tack on to the end of these chains of brilliant ideas, a couple of ideas of your own, well then you may just convince people listening to you that those ideas are brilliant too. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have told you all this. Uh, I basically just laid out a primer for starting your own cult. <laughs> Fortunately, very few people have the charisma to actually start a successful cult. Marianne Williamson though, she's got a perfect cult leader voice. She sounds great. She, she's almost got an accent. It's strange. I would maybe use the old transatlantic accent as an analogy. It's very enigmatic. She's like, she's not American. She's not European. Where is she from? Nobody knows. Another realm, maybe. But getting back to the how to start your own cult handbook, I saw this time and time again when I was studying philosophy in college. In just about every major philosophy throughout history, you had you know, maybe 20 great ideas and then one completely crazy one. Um, and it was obvious that a lot of these super popular philosophers were hooking their audiences in with these brilliant observations, stuff that most people hadn't really thought anything about. And then they were selling them on these insane ideas that made zero sense, um, but they were successful in doing so because the audience had heard so many correct ideas um, by the time that they heard the absurd ones that they'd already put their trust in the leader. And this is often how cults work. And Marianna Williamson, um, she works in exactly the same way. I read an interview where in an answer to one question, she quoted Sigmund Freud, and then answering another question a moment later, she quoted Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, this is textbook cult leader technique. Consistently quote figures that people universally recognize and respect. Marianne Williamson heads up a cult that follows a book called A Course in Miracles. This book was written by a woman named Helen Shookman, published in 1975. Shookman claimed that A Course in Miracles was dictated to her by a voice who claimed to be Jesus Christ. Helen Shookman was a Jewish, but converted to Christianity when she was 12 years old. She wrote the Course in Miracles book when she was in her 60s as a kind of self-help training system. Marianna Williamson read the book and she was uh, completely sold on the ideas in it. Throughout the 80s, she regularly lectured on the book and eventually wrote her own book um, subtitled Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. The book was, was titled A Return to Love. In 1992, Oprah read her book and 
recommended it to her viewers. And when that happened, the cult of Marianne Williamson was born. <laughs> I actually really dislike Marianne Williamson. I really don't like her because she exploits the language of Christianity and, and many Christian teachings in order to sell people on her own ideas. It's just about as nefarious a thing as I can imagine is possible to do. She claims to embrace Christ as a great prophetic figure, but she rejects the idea that he is the son of God, referring to the concept as quote-unquote hogwash. She once told a reporter, remember, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. My conversion to Christ has in no way ever at any point in my journey included even a serious consideration of a conversion to Christianity. Okay. I, I kind of regret covering her at all in this list because I genuinely think she's just doing this as a publicity stunt to gain more followers and sell more books. Her list of campaign policies is simply a carbon copy of Bernie Sanders's. Uh, she's for Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, free college tuition, blah, 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 blah. Honestly, this woman is just a con artist who tricked Oprah into thinking she was some kind of spiritual guru, and through Oprah and a bunch of other gullible women became a somewhat known figure in the world, which is horrible. Everything fabulous that could happen is already programmed in the ethers of the universe. The blueprint is already there. So does it matter then what I do? Yes, because if my, it's like a file in a computer. If my heart's not open, I don't download the possibility on earth as it is in heaven. So wow. it's a file. It's an undeletable file. But if I don't bring it down to the screen, if I stay in bitterness, what I'll get on the screen is bitter. That doesn't mean it's not in the computer. It oh, just means just it's not what water. I pushed in the... I just got that in the biggest way. Yeah. That is really good. Yeah, that was great. I think Marianne Williamson is a dangerous person, not in terms of becoming president, her candidacy is a total joke, but rather with regard to the capacity to influence gullible women into believing her psycho-spiritual nonsense. Now, Marianne Williamson is not the only dangerous person that Oprah has made famous. Oprah also recommended a book written by Susie Orman, and Susie Orman went on to produce a huge scam called the approved credit card or the approved debit card. This approved card cost thousands of people thousands of dollars. I mean, these people were ripped off big time. It was a huge, huge scam. Uh, Susie Orman was a total con artist, uh, just like Marianne Williamson. Oprah totally facilitated that. Oh, and guess who a good friend of Susie Orman is? Pocahontas herself, Elizabeth Warren. In fact, there's some shady stuff there with Elizabeth Warren um, starting some kind of a watch, watchdog group uh, for credit cards and credit card companies and totally turning a blind eye to all Susie Orman's scams and all that kind of stuff. I should actually make a video on that. It's so unbelievably crappy. Elizabeth Warren, th this is actually a real scandal, and I, I think Elizabeth Warren should be called called out on it. I don't know why not, nobody has really talked about it. With Elizabeth Warren looking on with a foolish smile, Hillary Rosen's PR team blasted the association out, using Orman to push Warren as president and Warren to push Orman as a trustworthy expert. Joe Biden. Donald Trump has dubbed Joe Biden Sleepy Joe Biden. And to be honest, I don't think it's one of Trump's best. I, I didn't even think it was accurate when I first heard it. But then I saw Joe Biden's campaign video. Charlottesville, Virginia is home to the author of one of the great documents in human history. We know it by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We've heard it so often, it's almost a cliche, but it's who we are. 
<laughs> what? I'm awake. I'm awake. Am I filming? Crap. <laughs> Joe Biden is much overrated by the polls. He's at the top, but he's got by far the most name recognition, and he's the only old school moderate with any name recognition at all. Once the debate starts, Biden will drop big time. I see him hanging in there until the end, though. It'll, it'll come down to him and whomever fights their way to the top of the pack. In the end, I believe it will be the other candidate. If it is Joe, the election is over. Trump wins. If it's anybody else, the Dems have a shot, but it's extremely thin. I, I think the only chance they've got honestly, is Tulsi Gabbard. I, I really don't see anybody else going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump. Elizabeth Warren could get some shots in, but she'd eventually get killed. Uh, Bernie is a communist, so he's got loyal superfans, but then there's just no way he's going to convince half the country to go the way of Venezuela. I'd like to talk a little bit about the creepy Joe Biden thing. I'm not a huge fan of Joe Biden, obviously. However, the hugging and kissing stuff isn't really a bad thing. I, I definitely think kissing strangers on the lips in a friendly, quote-unquote, friendly way, I mean, that's uncomfortable. I don't do that. I don't, you know, I don't like that sort of thing. It's not something I'd ever do. It's not something I'd want done to me. But this is old-school politics. If, if you watch any of these old films or TV shows featuring politicians, they're always, they're always kissing babies pretty much ever since forever. This is like a standard political thing. Politicians have to kiss babies. My point is that when, when Joe Biden was a kid, heck, even for much of his adult life, hugging and kissing and shaking hands and being physical was all part of politics. Look, it's not something that, that politicians particularly like, I don't think, but they, ha they used to have to do this stuff. Even today, you've got to shake hands, and that's, that's not my favorite thing. If I ever run for office, trust me, uh, you know, I'll shake your hand, but I'm, it's, it'll be a torture for me. <laughs> not you personally, but you know, people generally, like so many people, it's like, who wants to walk, shake hands with that many people? However, I would force myself to do it because it gets votes. And Biden seems to me to be one of these politicians that, for whatever reason, went all in on the handshake, baby-kissing aspect of campaigning. He dove, dove right into punching shoulders and giving hugs and kissing heads. And, you know, if you compile a bunch of videos out of context, it looks weird. But I think that's just the nature of old-school politics. Biden is conditioned to do that crap. And... You know, I really hate that we on the right have allowed ourselves to go after him on this. I mean, at the end of the day, the question is, is Joe Biden a sexual predator? Is he a nice guy or is he actually some kind of creepy pervert? We all know the answer. Okay, no, he's, he's not a pervert, all right? He's, he's not a sexual predator. This is the kind of crap that they did to Kavanaugh and they try to do to Republicans all the time. Oh, you dressed up like a ninja for Halloween? You're a racist. I mean, they love to take things that might be interpreted by some vast stretch of the imagination as somehow bad and use that to defend definitively prove that you are pure evil. I mean, it's a leftist thing. That's not what we should be doing. Now, at first, most of the criticism was being done by trolls, pranksters, comedians. The idea was that what Joe Biden was doing looked creepy, and the reason that it was funny is because we all knew that it was innocent, but it looked creepy. It's like words that sound racist but aren't, like spigot or renege or snicker. But the Joe Biden criticism eventually turned these criticisms became serious rebukes and discussions about appropriateness. It really annoyed me. It was like everybody on the right suddenly accepted that the left's ideas about political correctness are, are all great. I was horrified. The first time I saw this was on Tucker Carlson, and it made me, I was so pissed off, I actually made a video about it. But then Tucker Carlson did something that I rarely see anybody in politics ever do, even us on the right. He came out and he said he was wrong. He recognized the mistake and he apologized. I was thrilled to see that because Tuck is one of my favorites and I'd really been let down by that segment on the show. I never ended up posting the video that I'd made. But since then, I've seen tons of people on the right issue serious criticisms of the Joe Biden hugging scandal. And it's ridiculous. And any criticism of Joe Biden hugging people too much should be called out 
as such. Ridiculous. Now, that said, I'm not a fan of Biden. I don't like his politics. He's not a very charismatic guy. And, you know, he got the worst fake tan ever before going on The View. It was like, is he competing with Trump for the presidency or the worst fake tan ever contest? It was weird. Biden is primarily running on the platform I can beat Trump. That's it. It's a, it's a huge risk, actually, because there's nothing exciting about that. But, but the truth is, it's actually the only play that Biden has. He's such a, a boilerplate Democrat that there's nothing new or interesting for him to campaign on. When you look up establishment politician in the dictionary, it's actually a picture of Joe Biden. The risk is that one of the other 20 candidates excites the party. If they can excite the party about anything, They'll beat Joe. But don't underestimate the desperation on the left. They really want Trump out of office. And for the Dems, Biden seems like the safe bet. He's the comfortable one. He's the old sweater that you you never throw out. And he's got the legacy of being Obama's vice president. He basks in the reflected glory of the left's favorite person ever. But there's a fatal flaw in the Biden platform. He can't beat Trump. Honestly, none of the candidates have a good shot at beating Trump, but Biden definitely will lose. And I think that's obvious to most Democrats. He may get some reflected Obama glory, but he's definitely not Barack Obama. Obama may be despised by the right, but he was a good candidate. His, he excited his base and, and didn't piss off the right enough to keep him from getting elected twice. Biden excites no one. Biden is the concession vote. The vote that says, I don't care that much about any of these candidates, but I feel like I should vote Democrat, so I'm just going to vote Biden. Either that or, I just want Trump out. I don't care who wins. (laughs) A vote of desperation. Biden's net worth is $900,000. And so that's my analysis of all of the 2020 Democrat candidates. This is how the 2020 Democratic primary is going to go. Each of the candidates will have their diehard, super passionate core constituency. These voters will post crap on Facebook all the time, and they're going to argue passionately with their friends. And each candidate will take turns being the favorite until the debates. Once the debates start, we're going to see massive shifts. There will be real front runners. People are going to start getting behind their favorites, and the weakest candidates will soon drop out. First, Tim Ryan. Then Swalwell and Inslee and Castro and, and Klobuchar. I think Beto and Buttigieg will both do surprisingly poorly. They'll stick it out longer than the other folks I just mentioned, but not long after that, they'll drop out too. Mike Ravel and Marianne Williamson are both fake candidates, so you know who knows when they'll drop out. They're unpredictable, but they're also irrelevant. John Hickenlooper believes that he has something to say. So I think he's actually going to stay in longer than is irrational. Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand will all do reasonably well. The one who will surprise people will be Andrew Yang. He'll do better than anyone expects. Tulsi Gabbard will emerge, I think, as a frontrunner, and I think Elizabeth Warren will do okay, but not as well as she hopes. Bernie Sanders, probably the same. The excitement for both of them peaked in 2016. You know, some of it's still there, but anybody hoping for a repeat of the last Bernie campaign or an even bigger Bernie movement, they're in for a rude awakening. My prediction is Tulsi Gabbard or Joe Biden. With Joe, the left has no chance. With Tulsi, maybe, but no. Either way, Trump will win the general election. And now, my super short summary of each candidate. Joke, ventriloquist dummy, robot, poor man's Obama, prostitute, Soviet, antisocial personality disorder, 100% white, hilarious, gopher, 1992. Who? Whammon. Beavis. Poor man's Joe Biden. The only good one. Pinchers of power. Cult leader. The desperation vote.
Well, that's it for me. Thanks for watching. If you like this video, hit the like button. If you want to see more like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, your name is probably Seth Moulton or Wayne Messam. Sorry, guys. It was a long list. And to be honest, I got lazy toward the end. Good night. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Now, 